I'm Erin Tron Donahue, and I'm the writer of A Tourist Guide to Love, starring Rachel Lee Cook on Netflix on April 21st. I am a screenwriter. I currently live in Los Angeles with my Canadian nurse husband and my nine-year-old daughter, Tofino. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here and to talk about all things Vietnamese and movies and life and just uh, everything. Thanks for having me. Your mother, uh, my Donahue, popped up and... I went into a, a rabbit hole to, to to read about her life. And I read the first chapter of her book, her memoir. And you and I, we share a, this sort of family trait. The same year, actually, 1944-ish, is when your mother's father and my father's father were killed by the Viet Minh the same year. And they both experienced your your. Your mother's mother experienced the same thing as my father's mother, which is they found a, that the birth of this last child was bad luck in their in their history. And they casted these kids aside. And I couldn't help but think about how that affected you and I, the grandkids of these people, with this really traumatic past. How do you think that the history... Of your, you ever thought about how the history of your your grandmother affected you and how it's trickled down to our history? It was such a part of my life, but also not a part of my life. My mother's uh, life in Vietnam before I was born. So growing up in Rhode Island, I grew up in this town that was, you know, basically all white, upper middle class, New England town, and. There were no other Vietnamese people. I mean, barely any other Asians around even. And it was hard growing up there. It was beautiful and wonderful. But like my mom didn't actually really talk about her life in Vietnam very much. I mean, she it, it would always sort of come in you know, in my country, in my country. And like she would sort of reference it. But I didn't really know. And my dad was in the Navy. That was how they met. Um, was He was over there during the war. And so the Vietnam War as a presence was this like big looming but kind of silent uh force because my father also didn't talk about his time in the war he wasn't like one of those um sort of stereotypical veterans that was like oh i'm a vietnam vet and like you know the ptsd that he had was very he kept it very quiet and very internalized and they were very focused my mom was very focused on making sure that we were american you know like it was it was all about the american dream she didn't want us to be any more different than we already were you know i didn't grow up I don't speak Vietnamese. Um, you know, it wasn't something that we, I mean, I knew I was Vietnamese and it's not like my mom was like trying to hide the fact that she was Vietnamese, which she couldn't if she tried, but it just wasn't something that was, um, you know, a focus. And, but the stories, you know, they would come out and you you knew enough and you could tell that there was this sadness there. And, you know, and as and the stories would sort of come out throughout the years. So learning that, her family that her father and her grandfather and uncles were all killed when she was a child. I knew that she had grown up poor. I knew that she had had a rough life growing up and, and, but just in, in sort of a general sense. 
Um, and then it wasn't until I was uh, 15 and my mom was going back to Vietnam for the first time in 1993 when they reopened the borders that I found out that I, the the true sort of traumas that she had dealt with about the fact that she, when she was 14, um, had been forced into an arranged marriage and had a child with a man who was abusive and, um, you know, beat her and raped her. And she had had to run away from him and went to Saigon and lived, you know, trying to take care of her baby and couldn't. So then had to bring him back to her mother's village in central Vietnam, where she's from, from Guangai. And uh, she had to leave and then the, the father actually came and, and took the baby away. So she lost her son and for for a long time. And so I never I never knew that. I didn't know this. So when I was a child, when I was three, um, or before I was born actually, so this is a long story. So <laughs> there's, there's lots. Um, in uh, 1975, so it was before I was born, uh, we took in four Vietnamese foster boys who, I don't know if they were like distant distant cousins or, or somehow they were connected to us and we brought them over and, and fostered them for a few years. And then later when I was about three, another Vietnamese teenager came over and I we all thought he was just another Vietnamese foster boy, but he was actually my brother. He was my half brother. My this uh, father son. had found him. This is the first. Yeah, so her, her son, yes. So she, my, my, they had tracked him down, um, in a refugee camp and he had had a very hard life. His father had been killed. He, um, had grown up on, you know, the streets and everything and had a really hard life and was, so my father brought him over to live with us in Rhode Island in our white suburban town. And it was really, really hard, uh, for him to adjust for my mother to, uh, connect with him for them all of all of the issues all of that trauma all of that separation all of that guilt and anger and blame and, and cultural differences and um and so he ended up leaving and uh we kept it like over the years I remember him coming like every once in a while he ended up joining the navy um like my dad and uh and so it wasn't into so I but I never knew that he was my brother we never, and she didn't want us to tell us. She was ashamed. She thought that, you know, we would judge her for abandoning him. And so when she told me that though, like, of, of course I didn't, of course, you know, it just how understanding what she had been through, but it was like a whole new understanding of who my mother was and what she had been through and how strong she was. And at this point, just, you know, to make a long story short, family happily reunited we are all very close my brother An lives in Arizona his wife is also Vietnamese amazing his two sons like we are all a very very close family now so it does the it's a horrible beginning but has a happy ending um luckily but anyway back to back to my mom she at that point because I remember thinking you know, especially in America, my dad was like very uh, patriarchal, <laughs> very traditional, very conservative, you know, Catholic. You know, he was the man, he was a provider. Then my mom took care of the kids. There were six of us born in seven years. So it was insane. It was, and I'm the youngest. Um, our house was 
crazy. We didn't have any money. We lived in this rich white town, but we didn't have any money. We weren't white. And people discriminated against her and, you know, her accent, people underestimated her. I mean, she eventually basically ended up running the whole town. She's like a one woman Vietnamese mafia of Barrington, Rhode Island. She, everyone knows her, everyone loves her. Like she really, because the thing is, she is just, she's so strong. She has been through so much. And to finally understand that about her, to finally see that side of her um, over the years and realize that because my, I'd always thought like, oh, well, like what would happen? You know, how is mom going to survive if anything happened to dad? And my sister, I remember being like, do you know what mom was doing in Vietnam before she met dad? She had like a black market money laundering scheme. Like she was like that, you know, like she, and when I read her book, when she eventually wrote this memoir about her life and I read her story, it like, it helped everything sort of fall into place. I knew that my mother was strong with everything that she had done, with everything that she'd been through. You know, like when we were, she couldn't be educated. She loved to learn. She, but they they only sent the sons to school. So, you know, when she was in Saigon, she worked as a maid and then a nanny and she taught herself English and she, you know, started her own ice cream stand. And then this money, like, you know, she, she loved education. So when she, when I was in junior high, she went back to, um, school she got her GED she then went back and got her associate's degree and which took like six years and then went and got her bachelor's degree which took you know like another four or five years and it just seeing watching her persevere watching her take all of these obstacles that she went through and just keep going and going and going and um it was so inspiring for me and I think that is something that a lot of uh, first generation kids of immigrants and refugees um, have inside of them is just like watching that hard work and sacrifice of 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 what our parents have after what our parents have been through and what they do for us, what they did for us in order to give us a better life um, is something that is a value that has been so deeply instilled in me or something that I was so aware of that pushes me towards doing what I do and doing what I love and working hard. Um, because on the other hand, besides all the trauma that she's been through, she's also the most positive, generous, kind, giving person. Like she went, when she went, after she got her degree, she worked at the high, local high school as a teacher's aide in the alternative learning program working with all the kids with behavioral disorders or learning disabilities or, you know, the, the problem kids. And she could connect with them in a way that no one else could. And years later, when I was living back at home and bartending in this local uh, restaurant, a lot of these kids like worked there as like busboys or they would come back in because they're in college now or whatever. And they'd be like, oh my God, your mom, your mom is my Donahue. Like she saved my life. Like she, like so many people tell me about how she has changed their life and inspires them because she has been through so much and lived through so much trauma and yet has come through it with this generosity and this love and gratitude for everything that she has and so for me like that that generational trauma basically which is what we call it now but growing up we didn't have that term you know like we didn't realize it was just like oh it was just our our life and our experience. Um, I think it really, it does affect you because it also gives you 
and especially now that I have a child um, and looking back on what she went through to raise us, you have so much more empathy of like, oh, she was doing the best she could. She was doing the best she could with the trauma that she had and what she had to work through and um, wanting to, to give a better life for your child and for wanting to have a better life for yourself. And that to me is a lot of what the refugee, the immigrant experience is that it has good sides and it has bad sides, you know, like the, the stereotypical immigrant refugee Asian parent of like wanting you to be like a, a doctor or a lawyer because they want or an engineer or a nurse or something because they want that stability for you they want that safety they want their child to be safe that is I feel like wanting your kid to be happy is like a white privilege thing <laughs> like yeah. what or like a or like a you know a next generation thing yeah. like that's mm-hmm. because you know like I mean you have this experience as well like they just want you they want you to be safe that's the that's the the key and and I'm fighting that because you know when I get to hear stories like the way you were raised with your your mother and the stick with itness of becoming a screenwriter because heaven knows it's not easy. It's one of the hardest things I think. Being a screenwriter and a comedian, those two things are like the most hard thing to do in the world. The tenacity of being a screenwriter comes from you know this ability to never give up and to punch through and i think having you know i don't think it's a causality or you know it's it's there's a correlation between seeing your mother grind you know superhuman strength to grind but that brings up another thing is like when we think about our own children today you're you're saying that it's a you know the next generation kind of like we're worried about their happiness and you know getting them safe do you find yourself extricating your mind from that idea of you wanting your daughter to be safe? Or do you say, no, I'm just going to let life and difficulty happen so she can also bear witness to how tough life is and it'll make her a better person? I mean, uh, <laughs> this is actually literally like just last night, I was like, oh God, I'm a snowplow parent. I totally am. Like that whole, like I it used to be, it was like helicopter parenting is like hovering, but snowplow parenting is like, you're clearing all difficulties from their path. And I'm like, oh God, what am I doing? My, my child is growing up so privileged and so, and she's an only child and so spoiled and like can't handle. And that's actually like a huge fear of mine is that my yeah. daughter can't, it has a hard time handling hard things you know in and i in my like i said my philosophy is like figure it out deal with it i'm partly you know i'm gen x so i'm just like suck it up (laughs) like deal with it like gen x like whatever no one no one you just figure it out on your own you know like um ride down that hot metal slide that you know (laughs) and you know latchkey kid or like whatever like um but and so yeah no it's it's that hard balance of i I want her to be safe. I want her to be happy, but I want her to be resilient. I want her to be strong. I want her to be able, I want her to be grateful. I want her to recognize her privilege. But those things don't happen. Those things don't happen unless you have parents who are, have gone through trauma, who have, you know, or growing up poor, you know, I think I both are, you know, experienced that, you know, we lived in, places that were probably middle class, but we didn't experience that middle class experience, but we were among 
among that world and we can witness the higher class or the middle upper middle class but we didn't have we didn't you know our families didn't come from that kind of money but seeing that allowed us to really push forward and have this tenacity of these second generation you know immigrant kids that we are and i think that you know our children the third generation of these vietnamese grandparents i don't know i i yeah. worry about them all the time <laughs> I know, right? I'm like, I want to be super rich, but I don't want to raise a rich kid. Yeah. Like, how do you find how do you find that? I enjoy like my financial security that I have right now, which is fairly recent, but trying to, and she doesn't even remember, you know, I was just telling her the other day, like, because when she was younger and my husband was in nursing school and I hadn't sold anything wow. for a couple of years, and it was just like, and we had no money and we were so, so broke. And this is, I mean, literally within the past couple of years. And to the point where it's like I wouldn't go to Starbucks for a cup of coffee because it's like, well, no, I'm not going to spend, you know, like things. And she doesn't remember it. So she has that mentality of like, well, we'll just go buy it. Why can't we just go do that? Like, we should just go here. And I'm like, you have no idea. Like, <laughs> she doesn't remember um, like any a moment in her life when when we weren't able to just sort of afford going out to dinner where it's like, OK, yeah, we'll go out to dinner. Like, because we're for the longest time we didn't. And, and she and, and so it's like. I, I want to go out to dinner, but I don't want to, I don't want my kid to just expect that <laughs> we can just go out for dinner. You know, like, it's like, I, I don't want to pay for it. I mean, I'll pay for that. But then I'm like, Oh, but then my kid yeah. now thinks that like, that's just the way of life. Right. And, and I mean, but the, isn't that, that's what you want. I mean, you want your kid to have a better life than you had. You want yeah. them to have more. And so, but it's also, you don't want them to be, everyone has privileges, but you don't want it to turn into entitlement. Yeah. That's, and that's, that's the balance. key. That's and the balance. So, you know, and and for my my daughter and like telling her the stories about her grandmother and having her her know that history is really important to me. I want her to to know that that challenge, the the and, and the privilege that she does have, that she has not had to go through those types of things or that she hasn't had to go through even like what I have been through. And um but yeah, like it's it's hard that, that that balance of, you know, as and as you get further and further removed from that experience, on the one hand, it's great because you have that a, a different level of security and stability. Yeah. But on the other hand, it, it just takes you further and further mm -hmm. away from certain truth. Yeah. How did you get into screenwriting? When did you per begin to pursue it? Like what at what point in your life did you say, you know, I'm going to go for this? Uh, well, when I was younger, when I was little, I mean, I loved movies. I was obsessed with um, movies. My dad was really into movies. Like I said, uh, he, though, he was very strict. So I grew up actually on like old Hollywood black and white movies. So I loved Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, the Thin Man series. Just I used to read all the like biographies of you know, Mary Pickford and um, old, old Hollywood. And so grew up with like a deep love of movies. And then but wanted to be when I was really little, I think I wanted to be an actor. And then when I was in high school, I worked at this little tiny hole in the wall um, video store called American Video. And it was the 90s. So like I thought I was gonna be the next Tarant Quentin Tarantino. It was like Pulp Fiction, all that. Like I'm a video store clerk and watching all of those like indie movie, you know, the whole that whole uh, era where all the indie movies are coming out. Um, and then I went to Brown and I took a film course there. And the, the way that it works at Brown is it's it's not a film major. It's called Modern Culture and Media. And the first 
before you can really get into making films and stuff like that, there's a lot of theory. So I took this one intro course and it was all theory and I just hated it. It's just like, oh my God. Like it was just so pretentious. It was so like, you know, the hegemonic discourse of patriarchal society of the gays. And I was like, I, can we just talk about like the Goonies? Like, <laughs> like I want to talk about movies and characters and like, I want to make, you know, fun movies. And so what I actually ended up doing was I ended up becoming a history major, a Latin American history major, actually, um, randomly, just because I found a professor that I loved and I took all of his courses. And to me, history is just stories that it it's literally just the stories that happened in the past. And so understanding those stories, understanding why we are the way we are, learning that like the present is affected by the past is also something that a sort of theme in my life is is trying to reconcile past and present and then hopefully affect the future if you can understand all of those things um so I was a history major and then I took a lot of uh memoir writing classes there was a professor at Brown um Beth Taylor who did a class called writing Vietnam and it studied the it used the Vietnam War as a way to study different uh forms of writing so we read, you know, for, so for the novel, it was the things they carried, and then there was a memoir, and then there was an oral history, and then there was a, sort of nonfiction, or um, then there was poetry. Like there were all like all different styles of writing that had been created about Vietnam, about the Vietnam War, and I took that course, and that was just that was really life changing for me. Um, it just because it connected those two parts of myself at that point I knew I wanted to be a writer um I knew I was good at writing I knew I liked it my father was actually a writer so before my father met my mom he uh he won this poetry award the same I think the vagabond poetry award and the same year that Charles Bukowski won the poetry award like he was going to be this great American poet Unfortunately, he went to war. He suddenly had six kids in seven years to support and um, tried to he wrote this epic verse poem about the Vietnam War that no one really wanted to, you know, I mean, who even buys epic verse poetry in 1970 and the war was still going on. So uh, he he put aside that um, that dream and sort of supported all, all of our creative pursuits. So even though he was very intense and very um there was a lot of pressure to succeed, to get straight A's, to go to good colleges. All of my brothers and sisters, we all went to good schools. You had to do really well in school. But it was also like you can be it wasn't you have to be a doctor or a lawyer. It was you're going to work hard. Whatever artistic pursuit you have is what you can go. Like my sister's a, a dancer, a choreographer, or my other sister was an artist or my brother wanted to be an actor. Like any wow. anything he was. They were OK with that. But you had to work and you had to get good grades and then you had to figure out a way to support yourself um so he had always been very supportive of my writing and uh so yeah so I'm so I'm at Brown and I knew I wanted to be a writer um and I knew I loved film but I ended up actually started doing a lot of memoir stuff about my family about my life and so I was writing a lot of memoir and then I um and then after graduation I I spent a few years traveling and I met my husband and I'll get into that story later when we talk about the 
uh, tourist guide to love and and that and the inspiration for that. Um, but then and then we traveled for years. We uh, lived in Japan for a couple of years teaching English. We spent time in Indonesia. We went to South Africa where we got our um, offshore yacht master sailing certification because we wanted to sail around the world. So it was me and seven guys on a, a boat for for four months, which was intense. Uh, and then ended up back in Rhode Island for my sister's wedding. And we were supposed to get jobs on yachts. And then uh, my three sisters were pregnant and my dad was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And I was just like, I can't go. My uh, my boyfriend, hus- well, became my husband, um, was Canadian, couldn't work in the States. So then he ended up getting a, a job on a yacht and I decided to stay in Rhode Island to help out with my family. And in that time, over that course of that year, I wrote a novel and a very semi-autobiographical novel that never got that I never got published, sort of tried half-heartedly for like a year and then sort of gave up on. Ended up um, after that year bouncing around between all of my sisters, helping with their babies, taking care of my dad. Uh, I hadn't seen my boyfriend in Brad in, I saw him for like two weeks, a whole year. So I got tired of, of being separated. So I proposed and I put a ring on it. We got down. I put a ring on that, and uh, and we and we got married, and we ended up living in Rhode Island. We ended up living with my parents for like five months, and then and saying while we got his green card, um, I was a bartender, a freelance writer, a nanny, a tutor, um, all of the things that you do when you're you know trying to be a writer, and uh, we were there for three years, and then he was working as a marine electrician, and he was also delivering yachts. Because rich people, they don't move their own yachts. They they hire people to, you know, bring their yacht from one Caribbean island to the next. So he was gone for six weeks. And I was like, why have I never written a screenplay? I should write a screenplay. This is always my first love. Like, But the idea to me of, like, moving to L.A. and getting an agent and, you know, it just... It was so like, how, who does that? How do you do that? I'm from the East Coast. I'm going to live in New York. I'm going to be a novelist. Like that just made more sense to me. But I was like, whatever, I'm going to do this. So I got some books on how to write a screenplay. I read some screenplays and I wrote a screenplay. And I entered it into the Nickel Fellowship, which uh, was run by the Academy Awards as, uh, you know, to identify emerging screenwriters. And I made it through to the semifinals. And also at that point, so before I made it to the semifinals, right around that point, my husband and I decided we were not living the life we wanted to be living. So we sold everything we owned and got into our uh, 1973 V-Dub van and then spent the next year and a half driving around the U.S. and Canada. And that was when I made it through as we were driving around in the V-Dub. And when we set off, we were like, oh, we're going to be gone for like five months. We had like five months worth of savings, right? So we didn't know if we were coming back or what was happening. But I made it through to the semis and um, eventually was introduced to my manager through a friend who had shown it to this person who showed it to someone else. It was my manager. We met up and he was like, if you want to do this, you got to move to L.A. And I was like, well, park down the street. Done. Like we're here. And that was about 12 years ago. And so it wasn't necessarily a decision to like be like, I'm going to be a screenwriter. It was just sort of like, I'm going to write a screenplay. I'm just going to write a screenplay and see what happens. I knew that I wanted to be a writer. And then I was like, I'm going to try to be a, to write a screenplay. And then when that got positive feedback, 
And when I got my manager, um, it was just like, oh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And so I was really fortunate because it happened pretty quickly and easily for me. And I know that is not the path for most people. And I ended up selling something within the year. Um, I sold a feature pitch to Lionsgate for a, a female college comedy. And that got me into the WGA. And I haven't had to, thankfully, also because of my husband and, you know, in his the work that he's done over the years, um, I haven't had to work as anything else besides a screenwriter since since then. And so it just, it kind of happened. <laughs> the like, I don't know that if it hadn't happened so easily in terms of like getting a manager and selling, if I would have stuck with it, if I would have stayed in LA, if I would have been like, no, this is what I'm going to do. And I, and do the things that I know other people do in order to make it in this industry, like the hustling and the sending the scripts out and the networking and the trying to get read here and trying to get signed there and trying to get staffed here and making all of those connections on their own. I know people who have done that. And I am so just in awe of like, I mean, I have resilience and I have tenacity and I stick with it, but that there is a level that of what people go through in Hollywood to be a screenwriter that is just incredible to me because it is, it's so it is so, so hard. It is. So so, and then even, but then that's, and that's just even to get rep. That's even to get your foot in the door. It's so hard. And that's not even like, that's the thing people think, oh, if I, once I get an agent, you think like, before you get an agent, you just think, oh, once I get an agent, I'm in, right? No, like it's not. Or like once I sell something or once I produce something, it's constant. The grind is constant. You constantly have to pitch the next thing. There is very little security and stability of this industry. You are constantly like, your show ends, you have to get staffed again. You're, you got this movie made, but now you got to get the next one. You got to qualify for your health insurance again. You got to get paid, you know, like all of those steps. It just, it keeps going. So yeah, it's, and the competition and the rejection and, you know, all in the compromise, even when you are, you know, quote unquote, successful. Um, There's, there's always more. There's always someone doing better. There's always another idea you should be writing. There's always something else you should be selling. Uh, there's always a note that can be given um, or criticism after it's been produced. There's, there's a lot, but it's, but it's great. I am, I am living the dream, right? Like I, it's a dream job, but I always tell people too. It's like, but it's a job. Yeah. But how, how, I want to kind of break down. You have been in it for about 12 years and it's rare to see in 12 years. It's very rare to see even one product project get made. It there's screenwriters that have made a lot of money living off of rewrites, off of selling pitches, doing these things that never see the light of day, but they get paid handsomely for it. I know a few guys that are like that. They they live in the shadows and they would love <laughs> to have one project made. You've had five, right? Yeah, I think five. Five with yeah. a, a few, you know. Oh, six now, I think. Six, six with Tourist is my six MTV. Yeah, I think. Let me see. Three. Hold on. I can't even remember. There was a, there was MTV movie, Ladies Man. There was the first movie that I did for Lifetime was Drink, Slay, Love, which is like a teen vampire. There are the three Christmas movies for Lifetime that I have had made. And then, tour, yeah, Tourist is the 
the sixth one. That's, that's a real big accomplishment to do that because it's, you know, it's not every day that your anybody's project gets picked up to, cause there's so many, there's thousands of projects, thousands upon thousands of projects floating around in Hollywood. And when I kind of like try to think about the breakdown of how these things happen, it's almost like sorcery. It's almost like, <laughs> yeah, you, you never know, right? Like know. what's going to get made. I, I think of some of the projects that I've tried to sell or that I sold and didn't get made. And then I see the things that are getting made and I'm like, how did that one get made? Yeah. And mine didn't, you know, <laughs> what, how is, how is this happening? How is, how am I watching this show right now? And it got made and it made it through all the steps. Cause now at this point, I know all the hoops that you have to jump through and all the steps that it takes to actually get something on the air or in theaters. And I, and I, or I read what's been bought and I'm yeah. like, wait, how is that? happening and mine didn't get bought like mm -hmm. what and i know and every writer or not just writers i mean everyone in this industry right like yeah. it, it there is a sort of alchemy to it and in a luck and uh you know uh converging of multiple universal forces mm -hmm. it's got to be the right time the right person this person says no that person says yes you hit the right executive at the right moment mm -hmm. uh, with the right script and then even then, after they buy it, to actually get it made, because half the time the directive changes, the executive changes, the, there's turnover here. They're, they're, they're now not making that type of movie anymore. They're not doing this type of show anymore, which has happened to me, you know, like scripts that have been bought. And then they're like, oh, we're not we're not making Christmas movies anymore this year. So, you know, like every every project, like you said, like even if you even if they're bought, even if you're lucky enough to get yeah. your project bought to actually get it made. um it's not guaranteed. And I've had, you know, projects that have been bought that haven't been made. And so I think a lot of it is luck. Part of it is, um, you know, for me in terms of like three of the ones that have been produced are Christmas movies. And so that I think has helped me get more produced because they make more Christmas movies and they make mm -hmm. them every year. So those are for Lifetime and Lifetime makes a certain number of Christmas movies every year. And so once I made one for them and it did well and I created a good relationship with them, then it's like, okay, mm -hmm. what are we doing next year? What are we doing next year? And so that is one of the things that has allowed me to get movies produced is writing that type of movie where their ratio of development to production is higher than let's say just a feature film or a cable or a streamer where they often will buy more projects, but then they don't necessarily produce them. Right. What a great point. Yeah. How many, how many projects do you think you've sort of over the years developed and, and wrote, I'm not saying finished, but how many do you think, cause I'm trying to figure out, is it quality or is it quantity? What's oh God, the so many, <laughs> so many it's both the, the number of projects I have developed and not sold uh, is so many uh and, and like not just like there's there's ones that i've sort of developed on my own or written spec scripts on my own um and we've taken out and tried to sell and haven't sold and or there's ones that i've developed with producers and haven't sold and gone through any or and pitched some not even taking the pitch not even making it that far or that i've gone up for jobs where you you know they do these things called bake-offs where they they have ip they have a book they want to develop into a show or a movie and they bring in multiple writers to pitch their take so you 
come up with a whole take on how you are, how you see this book, how you would turn it into a movie, how you would turn it into a TV show, and you pitch it to them, and you don't get the job, and they go with someone else, and that's it. That's just whoosh, you don't own the you don't own the IP, so all that work that you do, you can't take it anywhere else. Um, I've done that a million times and I keep saying I'm never going to do it again. And then I just keep getting sucked back in because I love the IP so much that I'm like, no, I really want to do this. I'll do all this free work. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, it's, there is a lot of, of free work that goes on. There's a, which is something that, you know, the WGA, we writers, we talk about a lot. It's something that no one really quite knows the solution to, but there needs to be one. Um, and then there's just the stuff that I do on my own. There's just like, I have a a million ideas. I think part of it is quantity for me, at least. I think part of my success is that when I go into a meeting with someone or have a connection, when, when let's say Lifetime comes to me and says, let's do another Christmas movie. And I say, okay, I've got a list of ideas, like a ton. I'll send them 10 ideas. And that's only a portion of my idea list. I keep and a list of ideas that it's been, it's been going on 12 years. I've got ideas from still on my list from 12 years ago yeah. that it's just a concept. It's just a log line. It's like, Oh, or, or a world that I want to explore. And I, cause people are like, Oh, where do you get your ideas from? And I'm like, is that a problem? I don't, is that, is that something that like people like my problem is that too I have much. too many ideas. I have so many ideas that it stresses me out that I'll never get to write them all. I'll never get to do them. And I want to, I want every idea that I come up with. I'm like, Ooh, that would be fun to write. And so when I do talk to, to you know, other writers or emerging writers, um, I say, like, keep an idealist and just go out into the world and come up with this and like always be always be looking at things and, and trying to turn it into a story or always be keeping track of those details or always be listening to other people's stories and being like, I mean, it's the poor people in my life. I mean, I am horrible. I like I steal shit for I steal stuff from everyone, you know, like it's like who, oh, that, that, that's a, that'll make a good character point or that person's embarrassing story is going to be in a movie someday or um, just different situations of like, oh, I've, has anyone done a movie on like these, like, like knit, uh, quilting, <laughs> you know, like quilting is like, a, there's, you know, all these, especially with the internet, like you can realize that there's all these niche communities out there. And so then trying to find, you know, just details like that. And so, um, in terms of getting movies produced, I think that's a part of it. It's having a, a lot of ideas, being able to articulate them um, to to other people. And then let's say like, so beyond that, once you have those ideas, once they've bought them, once you're, because like we said, there's all these projects that never get made. So how do you take an idea from it's been sold to it's been made? And for me, I think one of, my uh strengths is i'm really good at collaborating with people i'm very good at listening to what other people have to say and to giving people uh i'm a people pleaser <laughs> like i it's it's something i've been working through in therapy mm-hmm. um but <laughs> i am a people pleaser i want the gold um, and i'm a nerd i want the gold star i want to do the best i want to be the best i want to give the best that i can so when when people give me notes, I want to make my work better. And I am, and I know that I am not always the best judge. I'm not objective enough to necessarily know what is working and what isn't working. So I take notes really well. When the producer, um, the network, studio, whatever, when they give me notes, 
even if I don't agree with them, I try to understand them. I try to process them because sometimes it's what they call the note behind the note. Yeah. And so they might be like, oh, you know, you need to cut this scene. And I'm, and I'm like, no, no, that seems really important. And then I realize, oh, it's because they don't get that she has this emotional issue right. that is resolved in this scene. So that's, they're just not seeing what I see in my head. So that's me. I have to translate it better. Um, and so my rewrites are usually more like I can, I can work well with rewrites because I have my personal motto is in terms of writing is either give them what they want or make them want what you have to give. And so I can, and that's the thing, you have to keep giving them what they want if you want to get it made. And it's frustrating because, yeah, you feel like a sellout or like, you know, and they're like, yeah, let's add, you know, I, I, my joke is always like, they're like, yeah, let's add an alien hooker. And you're like, sure, I can add an alien hooker into that child's movie. You're like, what, whatever it is that you want. Sure. If that's what's going to get it made, like, you know, find a way, I guess. Yeah. Um, but that's the truth of the industry is that you, they're the ones you have to. Take, I mean, you don't want to sell your soul, but you don't have to. You, For me, I know that I can usually find a solution. I'm very big on finding solutions, figuring it out, um, making things work, and working with what I have. And so within whatever constraints that I have, whatever the genre is, whatever the budget is, whatever the, the audience is, the demographic, the studio, the, like whatever those things are that are required for me to get to the next step, I try as hard as I can to do what I can to get to that next step because you're also, your payments are tied often right. to those right. next steps. And I want to get paid. I want to uh, pay my rent. I want to make my health insurance. I, like I said, this is a job. It It's, it's an artistic creative job, but it's a job. And in order for me to get paid, then I, and I get paid more when things get made. You know, like there are production bonuses, there are residuals, there are other other aspects of things getting made and those payments that I need to happen for me to live the life that I want to live. Yeah. And then also getting things produced helps your career. Events, it, it, yeah. Yeah. Like if like it will to have things sold is one thing, but to have things made that when you go into a meeting, they can just look up your IMDb and be like, oh, she's had these movies made or they can go watch it and be like, oh. That's like, I want this type of movie. So she could write this type of movie for me. Um, so it's always important to keep your eye on on that. And then another aspect of the business is paying attention to the business, paying attention to what is marketable, what is selling, who is buying what, reading Deadline, reading Variety, reading Hollywood Reporter, paying attention. It doesn't mean that you're selling out. You're just, it means you might be selling, you know, selling, to, you don't have to sell out in order to sell, but you have to be aware Yeah, because you can. And, and I have that in mind sort of before I even uh, like from concept level, a lot of the times, because sometimes people that you spend, I mean, to write an actual script can take so long. It's the energy, physical, the time, especially if you're doing this and you're trying to break in, you're working another job, you're, you've got kids like this, you've only got a certain amount of time to write. I, it's like, don't waste your, and, and you want to be a professional writer. You have to know that someone might want to buy this on the other side. And it doesn't have to be big money. It doesn't, it, it could be an indie movie. It could be, you know, if it's just a passion project, like when you want to write it just to get it out of you, that's one thing, or it could be a good sample. 
It could be if you just need it as a sample to show how good of a writer you are and get repped and everything. But even then to get repped, they need to know that this type of, they might know that this script itself is not going to sell, but a rep needs to know that you will be able to write a script that might sell someday. Because the other side of this, on the other side of the table are people whose, while they might appreciate good movies, appreciate good writing, believe in your talent, if they can't sell it, if they can't make or make money off of it, then they're just going to say, oh, this was great. I really enjoyed it. I'll be in touch. They're not going to buy. And then you don't get to quit your day job. You don't get your health insurance. You don't pay your rent. You have to keep those factors in mind. In my, in, in, in my, and that was, that was how I ended up uh, writing Christmas movies, actually. Um, I hadn't sold anything in like, over two years, we were uh, very, very quickly reaching the bottom of our savings. My, Unfortunately, in this world, my husband's nurse salary in Los Angeles does not cover our living expenses. And so we were at a point where I was like, I don't even know, like, what are we going to do? Like, I hadn't sold. I'd been working, grinding. Like you said, I I developed in that amount of time. I think I'd pitched like four features or, or no, like, four or five features. I'd written show Bibles for like five different TV shows that I'd pitched on. I tried to get staffed. I'd written a couple spec scripts. I mean, everything. And it was so close every single time I was like between me and another writer or like, oh, they almost bought it. And then it just, but like two years of grinding, nothing. I was at a super low point. And to the point where my sisters actually um, stepped in, had like an intervention with me where they were like, we're just really worried about you. Like you're depressed. You're not healthy. Like, could you, are you like, maybe you just, you walk away, you know, like you, you did great. You, you proved yourself, you know, like you made it, like you've gotten some movies produced, like, but like, you know, and I was like, you don't understand. I'm not qualified to do anything else at this point in my life. <laughs> I was like, before this, I was a bartender and like, I live in LA. I'm not hot enough to be a bartender anymore. Like I have a kid, you know, like I can't, I can't even do that. You know, like there's like literally nothing. I have no other, I have no other call, like, other things I can do. And I was like, and I'm actually really successful. <laughs> like, I'm like, I have an agent, you know, I have a manager. Like I, I, Lucy Lou is attached to direct one of my spec scripts. I was like, you don't like this. I'm, I'm, I know that I can do this. And, and so that resilience that my mother uh, instilled in me and my father um, kicked in. I was like, no, I'm, <clears throat> this is going to happen. And I had read, and right around this point, I had read this article about how they had made like a hundred Christmas movies that year between Netflix and Hallmark and Lifetime. And I went to my reps and I said, I want to write a Christmas movie. I need in on this. Like that's, can we, can we try to find me a Christmas movie? And I had made a movie for Lifetime years ago. And uh, so I went in and, and met with, um, with them and pitched a couple ideas and that was sugar and spice holiday. So they ended up buying a sugar and spice holiday, which was the first Asian centered Christmas cable movie ever. Like I think um, they had had, you know, movies with an Asian lead, but never, never one that was like centered around the Asian American family. Um, and so that was amazing. It was uh, it like, it really, it gave me confidence. It, um, and in the next year I sold three more projects, including Taurus Guide to Love. So everything turned around. And so part of it was me 
paying attention to the market. That was me paying attention and, and wanting to sell something and, and looking around and saying, what's selling? What can I write that can sell? And then bringing my own particular voice to that. And that was, for me, the feedback on Sugar and Spice Holiday was so incredible, not just like as like a fun Christmas movie that people really enjoyed, but from the Asian community. Um, oh, and by the way, Jackie Lai, I, it's funny because I had written it with the Chinese family. My brother-in-law is a Chinese American. His family had a restaurant and the, the father was actually based on my brother-in-law's brother. Um, but also because like with the mindset to the market, it's like, okay, it, Chinese is easier to cast, right? Like it's like a bigger, it's a bigger population. But then we actually ended up casting a Vietnamese actress, Jackie Lai, in the lead. So it's, I could have maybe written it as Vietnamese, but um, right. anyway, wow. <laughs> you know, like whatever. But, uh, you know, that the the feedback from the community being like, it was so awesome to see myself represented on screen. You know, like to like, yeah, because it's like Asian people celebrate Christmas too. And to just have it be a formulaic, you know, cheesy, whatever you want to call it, holiday, rom-com, but about Asian people. So it's the same storyline. She, enter, you know, she goes back home to visit her parents. She enters a gingerbread baking contest. She falls in love with her junior high school sweetheart or her high school crush or whatever. But, you know, they're eating with chopsticks. There's a family altar. Mm -hmm. They make jokes about stinky tofu. There's like all of that. Uh, Cultural elements. Yeah, that's just, and for me, a lot of it is no, just normalization. It's not just representation, yeah. it's normalization. It's just like, it's not about being Asian. Because there's so many movies that are, and that's fine, because movies need to be about, like, the, the experience of being Asian. But, like, you know, like, being Asian is just like, well, I'm just going through my daily life, right? right? Like, I'm just, not every moment of our existence is defined by our ethnic racial identity. Sometimes it's just Christmas. Sometimes it's just, like, we like baking Christmas cookies with our yeah. friends, but... Maybe you put in, you know, more ginger. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's maybe you put some extra ginger in that gingerbread, you know? <laughs> Irene, let's get into A Tourist Guide to Love. How did that project become, how did it, how did it start? You know, what inspired it to, to go? And what was the whole process of getting that film made? Well, that actually started because I had worked for, um, or with, this production company Muse um, years ago, you know, we developed a couple projects together uh, that never went through. And then they reached out to me and they were working with Rachel Lee Cook on trying to adapt a book, um, hopefully that they would sell the project to Netflix. And so they were like, would, would you be interested in this? And so I was like, yeah, sure. So started working on that. And then that project fell apart. Um, but uh, at that point had connected with Rachel and um, we're like, well, let's see what other, you know, what other ideas do you have? And Netflix was looking for something that was like a, an international story, sort of, um, uh, you know, this was during COVID during, this was in, um, I think it was the fall of, of 2020 when we, when we first started talking and so they wanted, you know, everyone's trapped at home. They wanted something sort of like escapist. And I had lived around the world in lots of places. And so gave them a couple of ideas. And one of the ideas was based off of actually how I met my husband. So when I graduated from college, um, I had never 
been to Vietnam. And right after I graduated from college that um, summer, my oldest sister, Mora, who had been born in Vietnam before my parents moved over to the, the U.S., uh, she wanted to have her wedding. She wanted to have a wedding there. So we, the whole family went back and she had a traditional Vietnamese ceremony at the family farm. It was my first time there. It was my dad's first time back since the war. It was just like just this amazing mind blowing trip of like really connecting for the first time with a part of my Vietnamese identity. And, you know, it, it's, it's crazy. And I think a lot of people who, a lot of Vietnamese people who grew up in the States and who have had that experience of going to Vietnam for the first time, it's that weird thing where you like, you're like, oh my God, that's because I'm Vietnamese. Like you didn't, you didn't realize that it was part of like Vietnamese culture. You just thought like, oh, this is just how I grew up or whatever. And, and, and seeing, and then, and, and meeting family that you've never met and just being like, oh, there might, and I don't even speak the language, but it's family. It's like bonding you and the connection and, and seeing the country and seeing how beautiful it was. And just this vibrant, amazing, beautiful place that, that felt already like it was a part of me and, and feeling like I was home in a, in a different home, you know, like uh, that it, it was home for me also, like another home that I felt connected to. And so that, um, that winter, my sister, Mora, who is a modern dance choreographer, had gotten a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation to study the Vietnamese contemporary performing arts community in Vietnam. And she was allowed to bring an assistant. And so she brought me. And so we were going over there for six weeks. And three days before I left, my boyfriend at the time, my very serious boyfriend who I was living with, broke up with me. And it was very unexpected. Uh, and he, so I was just like, totally heartbroken when I went over there. And he, you know, had been my safe, stable boyfriend. <clears throat> We were living this very sort of domestic, excuse me, <clears throat> domestic life. Um, and I was very comfortable. I go to Vietnam. I'm all heartbroken. But within a couple weeks, actually realized like that I like basically I was so grateful that he broke up with me after a couple wow. weeks because I realized that even though it was a good relationship, even though he was a nice guy, down the road, it would not have worked out. Our our sort of values were not the same. Our our life visions were different. And but if he hadn't broken up with me, I would have stayed in that relationship for a really long time before I realized that. And so suddenly I just felt like, and you know, I'm in Vietnam, I'm traveling around, I'm meeting all these people, I'm seeing my family again. I felt like completely free and and sort of like ready to 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 live a, a, a new path. And then my last week in, we were in Hanoi and we were trying to get tickets to the water puppet show and they were sold out. And so we're, but it was too early to go back to our hotel. And so we're walking, you know, through the backpacker district and we went into this bar and restaurant and there was nowhere to sit. And there are these four guys sitting at a table, these four backpackers, and they offered us a seat at the table and you know, we sat down with them, we went out drinking together, we went out dancing. And one of them was this dreamy Canadian surfer, who was, uh, who I spent the week with, and was supposed to be my holiday fling rebound romance. I didn't think I was ever going to see him again. He was on his way to China and Japan. He'd been, you know, surfing in Indonesia and Thailand. And um, I was going back to New York, where I'd been living and working and um, temping and bartending. 
And, uh, but then that, and it was, but it was amazing. It was like, I, I, I knew after meeting him with certainty, sort of that my, even if I never saw him again, that my life wasn't going to be the same because I suddenly realized like what I wanted and what I deserved from life and from love, like something bigger and a, a sort of more adventurous life and a more open life and a more of a willingness to sort of risk myself um, and be open to new experiences. And so, and I even, I wrote him a letter saying all of that. I didn't even know when I was going to see him, but I, or if I were to mail yeah. it, but like, I wrote him a letter saying all of those things, like, thank you. Like you, you just like, you just totally changed my life and taught me something about love. And then that summer I was um, driving cross country and by myself for like four months and I was in Seattle and he's from Banff in the Canadian Rockies and he ended up he got pneumonia in China ended up back in Banff and so I was like we reconnected over email and I was like oh well I'm driving you know I'm on the west coast maybe I'll come see you and he was like yeah sure come on up and so I drove 12 hours into the mountains my mom was all like he live in the mountain he could be crazy <laughs> and I was like oh well I'm, I'm going I'm just gonna you know and I was supposed to be like a you know three-day booty call and uh, I stayed for a month and we ended up, uh, and we've been together for 22 years now. Um, so that, so I sort of told them that story and basically the idea of a woman who was in a safe, stable relationship and thinking that she was on this sort of set life path. And then her boyfriend breaks up with her. She goes to Vietnam and then she falls in love with her Vietnamese tour guide. And so for me, it was really important. Well, because because we were developing, like, you know, if I had been writing the story on my own, she would have been a Vietnamese woman and maybe she would have fallen in love with a, a white backpacker. But because I was developing this with Rachel from the beginning, who was also a producer on this, um, I, from the very beginning, we knew it was going to be a Vietnamese male romantic lead. The idea of doing two white people falling in love in Vietnam was just like never even considered. Okay. Can there's I, there's can too I much of that. Right here. <laughs> when, when you put that idea out and you said there's going to be an Asian male lead, were there any executives or people at the studio level saying, nah, ah, 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 we got to stop that right here. Or was it sort of a natural progression? And people were like, okay, that's cool. Let's, let's do it. It, it honestly, it wasn't even a question. It was wow. just like, and, no, and there was no pushback. And there, it, it was actually more like, like if I had said the lead was white, they would have been like, no, I think there is, especially from the, the, the group that I was working with and also the uh, atmosphere today and the sort of sensitivities towards uh, representation and diversity. I think people knew that if they did another, like two white people falling in love in a foreign country and, and and finding themselves at you know like well you know like a little sort of eat pray love style like that type of movie isn't one that isn't a story it has been told before multiple times and they weren't interested in telling that story they wanted they actively were seeking a different um type of representation and so which was wonderful so like i there was never even a question of 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 a white male romantic lead um which was awesome because it, that was something that was really important to me i want to have you know i 
historically Asian men have never been the romantic lead. And never. so we, ever. <laughs> ever. I mean, there are there are portrayals of it, but there's this weird different portrayals of of an Asian male lead. And, you know, we've talked about this even like in a big movie like Shang-Chi with um, Simu Lu, he's not even a love interest with Aquafina. And yeah. I, 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 it boggles my mind all the time. They're paired up in a weird buddy comedy way. That's uh, that's really awkward. And yeah, just... I'm really hoping for the sequel. They give him you know, that they do a sequel and give him a love interest in that. And, and you make know. him more sexual, right? Just... Yeah, because he's hot. Right. <laughs> like, I want to objectify him more, <laughs> which I joke about like in the. So that was the thing, like, and I made it clear in the, you know, in the development, in the pitch that that was one of the things that I was that was important to me was making sure that the male lead is objective was desirable yeah. and was obje- there like there's a scene in the movie and I'm not giving it away because the trailer was released and it's in the trailer where uh where Scott is coming out of the water it's like a slow motion he's coming out of the water it's dripping down his body and I wrote that into the script I was like slow mo water dripping down the body <laughs> like she like actively and I joked about it it was my male objectification scene because I wanted to physically sexually objectify an Asian man for a wider audience because that because Asian men are hot they're sexy they're like they should be desired and so I you know and not that screenwriters actually really have any control over it but I was like you cannot cut this scene (laughs) no matter what other changes you make like you cannot cut this scene like this is a trailer moment this is like we need that everyone needs that moment (laughs) I think the audience is needed to see that 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 description reminds me of that aqua de joe that's like a cologne where oh, yeah, yeah I, the, the the model comes out with his hair you know uh, fabio the long hair and he comes yeah. out and the 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 decision for you to do that you know i i can't really ask if it's a courageous one because it's something that's sort of in our zeitgeist right now and you kind of just like said you know i'm going to insert this boldly without any apologies but at the same time, I mean, I can't believe there's no pushback from many of the executive level people at all. There wasn't. I mean, I have been really fortunate, I think, in my career. The people that I've worked with, I've always had a good experience with them, even if other people maybe have not had mm-hmm. a good experience with them. I, And maybe that's just part of my personality. I think... Uh, on the one hand, I'm incredibly easygoing and I get along with pretty much everyone. But on the other hand, I think I also put off, I have boundaries and I think people can sense that as well, that um, that I will, if forced to stand up for myself and don't uh, accept certain behaviors or um, I don't know, like, uh, so, so I, but, uh, but, but like I, on this one, I didn't even have, I don't even think it was about that. It was just like, they were looking, I think the the uh, things have shifted. Things have actually, I, I know that the change doesn't necessarily seem like it has to some people and it's not enough, but it has shifted. It's like, I mean, ever since, honestly, Crazy Rich Asians, I can literally tell you like the next day, everything changed. Like wow. suddenly people were buying Asian stories. They were asking if scripts that I had written with white protagonists, because that's what I did, you know, because I'm like I said, I'm just trying to get paid. All my scripts, all my scripts were white centered. Right. Like, I just want to get paid. I would sneak in like my like 
subversive Asian sidekick. And I, there was always like an Asian, a sneaky Asian oh. in one of my, like, I would just sneak them in. But like, there were no white leads in my scripts. And then suddenly people were like, can we rewrite this and have Asian leads? Can we do this? Can we make this Asian? And I was like, can we? You know, like those, that shift happened after Crazy Rich Asians. And I think it's happening even more with everything everywhere all at once. And it's amazing. And like I said, it's still not enough. And sometimes it is sort of token and performative but like whatever if it's if, if it's performative and i get paid and an asian actor gets paid and an asian dp like i don't care if you're just doing this lip service to make yourself look better because there are real life benefits to your performative allyship i mean it's you know there's a balance you don't want it to, you want it to be real and you want it to make a difference but you know what you cast that asian person to like make yourself look diverse there's an asian kid at home who doesn't know any of that stuff mm -hmm. who watches that movie and sees that asian lead and that affects them and that benefits them. And so I'm okay with it. I'm okay with baby steps and I'm okay with things not being perfect. And I'm okay with, I mean, not okay with, you know, but like, if this is what it takes, like I said, I'm very like, yeah. you, you figure it out, make the best of what you have and then make it better. You know? So if I can do my part to like, you know, this movie, my movies aren't perfect. I'm sure there are Asian people who are and Vietnamese people who are going to watch a tourist guide to love and be like, what you know, like, blah, 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 like this is horrible, and this isn't right, and that's not right, and this, and they're not represented enough, or this character should be shown more, or this, and it's like, or, or you know, why is there a white lead, or why can't it be two Asian people? And it's like, there's lots of different factors. We need to get things made. I, I want the the overall benefit of what this movie for me brings to the world, <laughs> to the audience, not just the audience, but to the, to the to Vietnam. You know, like we, one of the things that was really important to me about this movie is that every American, when Americans think of Vietnam, they think of the war. That's it. That's like, that's pretty much the majority of Americans. That's the lens that they have seen this country and this culture through. And I wanted to make a movie about Vietnam that was not about the war. That was that, you know, it's something like what, 80% of the Vietnamese population was born after the war. I mean, it's, it's not it's a part of their history, but it's not what defines them. It's a whole country. It's a whole culture. There's so much more to it than just the war. I wanted to write a story that was a love story and not a war story. And that showcased what Vietnam is today, a modern, a more modern look at it. And it's not perfect. I know that, but, um, but it's something it's, it brought, it was the, for, I, I keep telling, I keep being like, someone needs to fact check me on this because I might just be spewing lies. But I think it is the first like Hollywood movie to be fully filmed in Vietnam since the war, because every other American movie is about the war and the Vietnamese government is not going to let right. a movie about the war be filmed in Vietnam. Yeah, there's so many that have been made in Vietnam or parts of it have been made in Vietnam, but not in its entirety in Vietnam. Yeah, it's and like I they shoot it in Thailand or in the Philippines or... You know, um, and we have had an incredible level of support from the Vietnamese government. They have been so supportive of this movie because I think they appreciate that it is a love letter to Vietnam and that it is an attempt to reframe how people see the country. And it brought, you know, when I was over there filming, I, I, my, so I brought my husband and, and my daughter and I went to watch them. It was like last year, I think, like right, like literally like a year ago, I was in Vietnam yeah. um, or maybe like right around now. I was in Vietnam and we went 
we saw my family. We went and visited the set. I hadn't been there in 20 years. And so my husband got to meet my family daughter. It was so incredible. Um, you know, watching my daughter, my aunt still lives on the family farm in Dukfo and watching my daughter like run around and catch chickens where my mom used to catch chickens when she was a kid. I mean, that, you know, I was crying, you know, <laughs> like bawling. I'm like, oh, my God. Um, that Watching my, my you know, my daughter, she's a quarter Vietnamese. She's white presenting. Um, but watching her connect to her Vietnamese identity was so powerful. And And I said to her, I said, you know, the world, no one is ever going to see you as Vietnamese, but you are Vietnamese. Yeah. Like, this is you. And no one gets to decide. No one gets to decide how Vietnamese you are. And the connection that you feel, and this is your family, and this is your history and your culture, and you own that. And no one can ever take that away. And so that was really powerful to me. But then going on to the set, watching them film this, these scenes that had been in my head coming to life. And, you know, and I said to her too, like, the this this all this is happening you see all this all this and people watching you know people on the streets watching and the cameras and lights and all this setup and everything and I was like all this started because mommy had an idea I had an idea in my head and now it's real and if you dream big and you work hard like these things can happen you know you just have to go for it and then someone also mentioned to me someone who worked on the movie was like pointed out that my movie this thing that started as an idea in my head brought millions of dollars into the Vietnamese economy and created all of these jobs for all of these Vietnamese people and legitimized a film industry. You know, he was like, there's other internet now that this, now that Netflix has filmed a movie here, other international productions are like, Oh, you can film movies in Vietnam. There's, there's a infrastructure that, and it wasn't, you know, there were issues and it wasn't perfect and it's still growing, but like, that one step now gave all those people that experience so that the next time an international production comes in, they know better what to do and they can keep creating those jobs and hopefully creating um, not just a more of a domestic Vietnamese film industry, but an international one yeah. where international production so that Vietnam can continue to be represented on a global scale in a more positive way or just in any way, just be represented, you know, and also, and again, and to bring, like I said, back to the business, put that money into the economy. And then also the tourism that will happen from people seeing this movie, because it looks gorgeous. <laughs> it really, it just makes it, 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 it captures so much of the beauty and the joy of, um, of Vietnam and its culture. And so now I hope that everyone who sees it wants to learn more about Vietnam, wants to travel to Vietnam. Um, and, and wants, Vietnamese men and wants Vietnamese men and wants I tell me just go go to Vietnam find yourself <laughs> find yourself a good Vietnamese man but I mean <laughs> I mean in all honesty objectify Scott, him <laughs> yeah. Scott Lee's an American a Vietnamese American uh man and mm-hmm. he's a hunk you know Scott That's- Scott's a hunk and, and so or the poor guy I was there on set the day that like I said I was on the beach scene when he filmed that like coming out of the water scene and the poor guy had not eaten a carb in I don't even know how many months he was like just constantly doing like push-ups and sit-ups and I remember like my daughter like saw him at the breakfast buffet at the hotel she was like he put four hard-boiled eggs in his pocket I don't what <laughs> like all he was eating was just like protein the poor guy just <laughs> but yeah no he looked he looked good it's good. worth it he pulled it <laughs> off <laughs> What's next? What what other Vietnamese stories uh, are in the pipeline for you? Is there any? Uh, I have a bunch of ideas and projects that I'm trying to develop. 
There are a couple of book adaptations that I am currently trying to develop as well. Uh, it it's all it's all sort of up in the air. It's like I said, it depends on uh, who's who's buying. <laughs> you know what? What it's hard because like you know they don't. I don't know that. You know, like I I made this movie with Netflix that's set in Vietnam. Are they going to make another one set in Vietnam? I don't know, but maybe someone else wants to make another one set in Vietnam. And I have a couple ideas that I want to develop that are set in Vietnam. There are movies that I want to write that are set in the U.S. that have Vietnamese characters. I would love to adapt. Um, so my mother's book, uh, Crossing the Bamboo Bridge, I have been kind of trying to adapt that. I want to, like, that's a sort of, passion project of mine is is adapting my mother's book because it's just it's so beautiful and the love story between her and my dad is is amazing and the story of her strength and it's very much a statement on like you know it's uh about how hard it was to grow up as a strong woman in the very patriarchal society that Vietnam is um and during the war and at, and at that time and so that's a story that I want to tell because again, it's always like I said, it's always the white American male mm -hmm. perspective. I want to show the of war, the Vietnamese female perspective of war is a story that hasn't been told yet. I think that um, although there was like uh, when heaven and earth change places, right. that really is, like this is, a, this is a different version. You know, like it's 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 my mother's story. I think is it's similar but but different. Um, they, they actually come from the same area. Your mother oh, really? and Lili are both uh, Guanghai. Um, oh, okay. I didn't, I didn't actually know that. Strong but, um, women. Yes. Strong some strong women from that area. From that area, strong, yeah. They're, strong women. They're yeah. Strong, tough women. We have our, the family motto is don't mess with the little woman. <laughs> like that. We literally have a sign in the kitchen that says don't mess with the little woman. Yeah. They're strong, um, tough, tough people. Yeah. But so I'm working, I'm working on that. And uh, so hopefully, and then there's a lot of projects that I have that are not Vietnamese centered. Because like I said before, there's, you know, multiple aspects of uh, my life, my identity. I have a, a script that I wrote that I mentioned before that Lucy Liu is attached to direct and produce. It's about motherhood and it's called Time Out. Um, that was not originally Asian centered, but I have fantasies about casting the leads with certain Asian actresses um, that I would love to work with. And, um, and I always, and like I said, there's a couple other projects that had originally been uh, written with white leads that I'm sort of reworking um, to hopefully be cast with Asian actresses. And then I have a couple Christmas movies that I've been pitching, developing some scripts that I've written. And because you know, I, I mean, I love the Christmas movies. I love, I love them. And like I said, and business wise, they make them every year. So I always tell the new writers you know, emerging writers, everyone I talk to, I'm like, you just need to go write a Christmas movie. You need to write a Hallmark movie. They make a hundred a year. And that's another sort of one of my sort of soapbox um, moments is I feel like movies like that, romantic comedies, Christmas movies, Hallmark movies, these movies are very often looked down upon. They are not uh, valued. They are sort of dismissed as this sort of, you know, fluff chiclet things like that chick flicks and to me that is such bs it's such uh, a result of the patriarchy yeah. the way that we devalue anything that is deemed feminine that uh you know these 
men in their like action movies and their, you know, million Star Wars spinoffs and Marvel movies, like somehow that is valued in a way that a romantic comedy isn't because whatever is considered feminine is is not considered worthy. And these stories, I mean, love to me is the purpose of life. Love is everything. It is what drives everything. So whether it's a, a romantic drama or a romantic comedy, the the search for love, the um the power of love to drive us towards certain things, that to me is such a central storyline and a universal storyline and one that should be told and should be told with with respect and with value. So you can take these movies, you can write a romantic comedy, and some of them are horrible. And I get that. And it's the whole thing like you can take but you can elevate them. For me, I just want to do the best version of whatever that is. So if I'm writing a Hallmark movie, which I am currently right now, I'm going to write the best version of that Hallmark movie and that type of movie that I can do. Same thing with the Christmas movies. I try to find a way to make my, because there's every Christmas movie has been, you know, there's a million of them. Those storylines have been recycled. There is a formula. There is a certain formula that people expect in a romantic comedy. So I'm going to take that the same way that you can take a recipe yeah. for mac and cheese and it can be craft instant mac and cheese or it can be like garlic truffle lobster mac and cheese. You know, like there are so many levels and so many ways that you can take different ingredients and create different formulas, different recipes and create something of value and something that connects with your audience. Because to me, that is my goal as a writer is to emotionally connect with an audience. I mean, that's my goal as a person is to emotionally connect with people. I think that that is the purpose of to, and that is the way towards a good life is, is emotional connection. And so I want to, so I'll find, you know, like what, what, you know, I'll start with that concept, that sort of universal concept of a Christmas movie or an idea. And I get inspiration from everywhere. And then, and then I go to the characters for me, I, I'm very character driven in the way that I write. So I, I have to start with the concept, which hopefully is marketable. <laughs> and then I go to the characters. Who are these people? What drives them? What is their purpose? What do they need to learn? What are their conflicts going to be? And then I come up with the plot. So, um, and we had talked earlier about, about theme. Um, I know we've talked about that before. Theme is also like that usually comes, usually comes before the plot. It's like, who are these characters? What are the lessons mm. that they need to learn? So from that, what is the theme of this movie? And that drives the story. Yeah. And that is what, because I, I can't know what these characters, if I don't, I don't know what happens if I don't know who the people are, because yeah. that's how choices get made. And what is their emotional issue? What do they need to solve? What is their quest going to be? How do I resolve it? How do I complicate it? If I don't know who, what their motivation is, then the storyline doesn't work. So the plot for me is always the last thing that happens. Although I might have like certain scenes, like, oh, I want to get, you know, I want this scene to happen. But working through all of that always comes, you know, from the character. And that's how you keep, to me, that's how you keep stories fresh. That's how you can take a formula. That's how you can take right. a, a romantic comedy or something that could be disposable, that could be thin and irrelevant and make it substantial make it is by giving complexity to your characters by drawing from your own life um especially like as a woman as a woman of color i think at this point it actually is helpful to me career-wise because right now people are actually seeking diverse voices and so to be able to come in 
and say, well, I've had this experience or this is how I connect from my personal life and present a different narrative is something that people are interested in hearing. And so for any people of color who are listening to this, who want to be screenwriters, I would, my advice would be to lean into that and to lean into your personal experience, especially to get established because on newer writers, they love it when there's a personal connection, you know, like right, they right. love it when there's a, you know, this is your story as you, as you get more experienced and you sort of proven yourself more, they have more of an ability to trust you to write beyond your personal right. experience. But when getting started, if you have a story from your own life that you want to tell, then tell it because no one else is going to tell it. You should be the one telling it and tell in, in, in a way that makes them feel even if it, even if it's similar to a lot of other people's stories, you have to make them feel like you are the only person that can tell the story. You make it individual. You put in those details from your history, from your friends, from your research, from just life observation, you can take a universal, you take a universal story and you make it specific. You use specific experience, specific voice to vocalize a universal experience. So you go back and forth, you try to connect because you want people just, I mean, yeah, you, you want to make movies for your community. You want to make, tell stories for your community. But the goal, I think, would be to have people outside of your community connect with that story because then that's what sort of opens minds. That's what connects populations. That's what breaks down barriers is when people emotionally connect to experiences beyond themselves. So if you can do that through your script, then you will have a higher chance of success. Irene, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing A Tourist Guide to Love comes out April 21st. 21st? Yep. April it's 21st. Nation, and, uh, you know, globally, I think on on Netflix. On Netflix, yeah. yeah, we are all excited as a community here in LA, uh, the Vietnamese entertainment and community. We can't wait, and um, I look forward to the next few years of your writing and your work as well. After sitting and listening to your way of seeing the work being done, uh, I'm excited to see what comes out for the next twenty years. Oh, I'm, I mean, I'm excited. <laughs> hopefully it'll still be coming out. And hopefully those stories will be more Vietnamese stories. And I'm so uh, grateful to be on this podcast, to be able to reach hopefully a, a wider, you know, not just a wider, like, but specifically the Vietnamese community, because like I said, growing up half Asian, growing up in a white town, I didn't always have that connection to a part of my identity. And it's something that has been a journey and a process. Like I just actually added my mom's maiden name to my professional name. So my legal name is Erin Donahue, but I added the Tron to not just mm -hmm. honor my mother, but also so that people would know that people watching would know that I was Vietnamese because I, I know how excited I get when I see a Vietnamese name mm -hmm. on screen. And so for someone to be like, oh, and also with Taurus Guide to Love, I I really want people to know that a Vietnamese person, because I have such a white, my name is so white, <laughs> you know, like, I was like, no, I don't want people to see them be like, oh, white lady wrote this, you know, like, yeah. I was like, no, <laughs> I wanted to make sure. And so, yeah, this is just within the past year that I added that um, to my professional name to, as a way to increase representation um, for Vietnamese people, because there are not a lot of us, but we're growing. Yeah. You know, like I connecting with you, connecting with so many people. Um, shout out. I got a shout out, Jess Vu. Jess Vu. Killing it. Killing shout out it to there. Jess Vu, head of the Vietnamese Hollywood Mafia. She is connecting <laughs> me. She connected me to you. She yeah. and the and Cape, the work that Cape does for Asian representation. 
um, is amazing. And I'm just so grateful the, to be a part of this community and to keep meeting people um, and to keep raising representation in, in Hollywood and therefore to a wider audience because it's so much more than the war. And, and I want people to know that. Yeah. Well, thanks again. I will definitely be seeing you soon. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. 